Again, glad you guys are here. If you're online, glad that y'all are joining us as well. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Ezra 9, middle school. Y'all can slip out with Autumn if y'all want to do that. All right, Ezra 9. So Ezra 8 closes. Ezra arrives safely in Jerusalem. That's the headline. He's not by himself. He's traveled with 5,000 fellow exiles who are returning to Judah. And he's also got over 60,000 pounds of gold and silver, much of which has been given to him by the king that he's supposed to use in worship or to worship the Lord. Remember, Ezra is a priest. He's a scribe. He was given this assignment by the king, Artaxerxes. Go to Jerusalem and see that it makes sure everybody's following the rules. Make sure everybody's worshiping God the way God wants to be worshiped. Make sure they're obeying the law. And so Ezra takes this 900-mile journey over dangerous roads with 5,000 other people and all of this gold and silver. And because the hand of his God was on him, he arrives safely. Chapter 9 picks up four months later. We don't know exactly what Ezra did between in those four months. My best guess, uh, one of the things Artaxerxes, the king, gave to Ezra was a letter. You can find that in Ezra 7. And that letter was to all of the local officials. And it says, here's how you're supposed to support Ezra and the Jews in their worship of God. So I think when Ezra got to Jerusalem, after he gave all of the money uh, to the priests, after he made an offering to the Lord, the next thing he did was he traveled around to tell all the local officials, here's what the king wants you to do. Here's how he wants you to help us in our worship. And then chapter 9 picks up from there. Ideally, we could do chapter 9 and chapter 10 together because they're one unit, but it's too much for one day. So what we'll do today is chapter 9, which is the situation that Ezra encounters in Judah. And then his response, next week we'll look at chapter 10, which is the response of the people to him. So chapter 9, starting in verse 1, after these things had been done, so that's after Ezra had traveled around to those local officials, the leaders came to me and they said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and they've mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn. I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God, and I prayed. I'm too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we're slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He's shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He's granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he's given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said the land you're entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. 
Therefore, don't give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Don't seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you've punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you're righteous. We're left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. So Ezra gets back after his little four-month tour, and some of the leaders in the community come to him and say, hey, we got a problem. Folks in our community, we have Jews who are marrying foreigners, and the religious leaders, the priests and the Levites, are leading the way in this. So remember, exile 586, the Babylonians exile um, many of the Jews from Judah, but they don't leave the land empty. They resettle foreigners in the land. So when the Jews return 70 years later under Cyrus in 539, they're not coming back to an empty area. They're coming back to a place where people have now been living for 50, 60, 70 years, and they've made it their home. They're non-Jews. They're called people of the land. And now at the point of Ezra, chapter 9, they've been there for 130, 140, 150 years. They're well established. So we have Jewish men and their sons are marrying these people of the land, these foreign women and their uh, and, and giving their sons to their uh, daughters. So that's an issue. And Ezra's response is, I, I think it's genuine and sincere, but it's very public. He sits down in front of the temple, appalled, stunned, dumbfounded. He doesn't say anything. Rips his clothes, which is a sign of grief. Pulls hair out of his head and his beard, which would hurt, as a sign of his grief and his distress. And again, it, I, I, he's genuine, but I think it's calculated. If you remember, Ezra had been given power to enforce the law. He could have just kind of come in as a sheriff and said, here's what we're going to do, but he doesn't do that. He takes a very different approach. He sits down in a public place, obviously upset, and it it works. At 3 o'clock, that's the time of the evening sacrifice. People are gathering. It's also a time of prayer and confession. And so the righteous people gather around them, those who tremble at the word of the Lord. They want to know what's going on. Like, why, why are you doing this, Ezra? And then at the appointed time, he prays. And again, his prayer is genuine and sincere, but he knows people are listening. He's praying out loud, and he's praying to God, but he's, he's certainly happy that he has an audience as well. And next week, we'll see how that plays out for him. But it, it, his prayer, he, he doesn't ask God to do anything. He doesn't even ask God to forgive the Israelites. He just acknowledges and, and confesses their sin. There's two main themes in the prayer. One is the behavior, the character of the Israelites, and the other is the behavior, the character of God. And what God says, or what, excuse me, what Ezra says about the Jews, about the people, is we're rebellious and we're sinful. And it's not just this generation. It's not just that we've got some people who are marrying foreign women. This goes back. It's our parents and it's our grandparents and it's our great great grandparents and our great 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 grandparents. The reason we've been in exile was because of us, is the sins that we committed. We've been humiliated because of that. That's why we're living in exile. And God, we've been rebellious and sinful, but you are merciful and gracious. You could have, maybe you even should have, cut us off completely, destroyed us completely, rejected us, but you didn't. 
You preserved this remnant, 42,360 Jews that returned to the land under Cyrus. And in the years and decades that have passed, that group has grown. You've been gracious to us. You moved on the heart of these pagan kings to allow us to come back, to help us build the temple. You continue to protect us as this small minority in this land. And what have we done with your mercy and with your grace? We've decided to break your law and marry foreign women. You explicitly said we couldn't do that. We're doing it anyway. You're a righteous God. You're a just judge. And if we were writing that prayer, we would say dot, dot, dot. He just leaves it. Again, he doesn't ask necessarily for God to do anything. He's been praying sincerely and genuinely to the Lord, but there's also an audience around. And we'll see next week what Ezra's prayer provokes from them. So three things. All of these are hard. So you just know that. All of these things are hard to think about, talk about, and work through. So, I don't know. Sorry on the front end. First, the phrase, it's identificational repentance. That's not a phrase many of us use. Think about Ezra's prayer. So he begins first person singular. God, I can't even lift my head to look at you. I'm so ashamed and so disgraced. But then he shifts to first person plural. And the rest of the prayer is us and we. Now remember, Ezra is described as a devoted, that full heart, as devoted to uh, the study of the law, the observance of the law, and the teaching of the law. Ezra's only been in the land for four months. He hasn't married a foreign woman. And when it comes to confessing the sin, though, he owns it. He takes responsibility. He says, our sin. And he doesn't just... uh, identify with the sin of his contemporaries, he also starts talking about the sin of his parents and his grandparents and his great-great-grandparents. He said, you know, we committed these sins that led to our exile. Ezra's grandparents weren't even born then. And he's owning that sin. It's called corporate solidarity. It's this idea that we're part of a group. And Ezra is saying, I'm part of a group. I'm part of God's chosen people. I'm part of Israel. I'm part of the Jews. And the sins that have been committed by other Jews, I own those as a Jew. Even though I didn't personally commit them. I can acknowledge. I can take ownership. I can repent. Again, his prayer is genuine and sincere. And it's us and we and our, first person plural. Now that cuts against everything it means to be an American. And our rugged individualism. It actually cuts against a lot of what we talk about in church, our personal relationship with Jesus, which is incredibly important. We're all responsible for our own hearts. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Every one of us has to, we've got to do that. We have to figure out where we stand. Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And he asks every one of us that same question. And we're saved into a body. We're not saved as these isolated individuals that continue to relate to God only on our own, privately and personally. We're saved into a body, and that's very difficult for us to grasp. And then if you think about with Ezra, it's a body that doesn't just extend horizontally. It's also, if I can say it this way, a body that extends vertically through time. He's taking ownership of sins of his contemporaries and the sins of his ancestors. 
The church, capital C, extends across the world and throughout time. And we're all a part of that. Y'all saw the people being baptized on the screen there. They were baptized into a body. They're not isolated individuals. That rite of baptism that communicates, hey, you just got a whole bunch more brothers and sisters than you had the day before. What does that look like played out? Think about the racial unrest this summer. So most of the people who are in this room, most of the people watching online are white Christians. At this point, Stonebridge is mostly made up of white Christians. That's who we are on January, um, excuse me, March 7th, 2021. So speaking to the majority, speaking to the white Christians, what does it look like for us to respond to that racial unrest and tension like Ezra did? To acknowledge, I'm a part of a group of white Christians that extends horizontally and extends vertically. And what if, even if somehow I'm the one guy who's ever been born that's never had a racist thought or behaved in a racist way. I'm the, I've never laughed at a racist joke. I never crossed the street when two black teenage boys were walking down the road. I've never done that. I'm pure as a driven snow. I'm not, but let's just say I am. I can still, like Ezra, acknowledge I'm part of a group. I'm a part of this group. And in my group, we've discriminated against and persecuted black people. And so I can take ownership for that even if I never did it. If I didn't own slaves and my parents didn't own slaves and my great-grandparents didn't own... Regardless of my personal culpability, which I have some, but even if I have none, to acknowledge I'm part of a group. And so I can take responsibility. I can acknowledge. I can confess. It's not about white guilt or white fragility or white supremacy. It's a biblical response to corporate sin. If there's something in you that's going, that's fighting, that's arguing with me, I would just say, what is it? And I'll fill in the blank. It's pride, most likely. It's not fair. Fair is not a kingdom value. We don't want fair. We want grace and mercy. Does any of us want to be treated the way we deserve? No. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. That's the great news. When Ezra takes responsibility and repents on behalf of his people, he's opening the door for his people, not just for himself, for his people to receive grace and mercy. When we do the same, that's what we're doing. We're somehow mysteriously, we're opening up the door for God to be gracious and merciful to a group, to a body, to a people. I just encourage you to think that through. It gets harder. That was the easy one. Intermarriage. So what is that? I just talked about race. Is God a racist? He says, don't marry the foreigners. That sounds like a racial statement. Deuteronomy 7 is very clear. Before Israel enters the promised land, he says, don't marry any of them. Don't make a treaty with any of them. Don't be friends with any of them. Destroy them all. Harsh words. Why? Each one of these nations has their own God. Every one of them does. And if you invite them into your family, you're inviting the worship of other gods into your home. And eventually that leads to something called syncretism, the blending together of two faiths. God's people are holy. They're set apart from the other nations. 
And once they invite this worship of other gods into their homes, which then means into their hearts, they're at risk of losing their identity as a people of God. That's why Ezra responds so strongly. It's a huge deal what they're doing. Stereotypically, the moms had primary responsibility for raising children. Dads are out there working the fields. This is all stereotypes. It's true of this culture in this time. So if you're marrying foreign women, those women are raising your children according to their own religious customs. One generation away from Israel being extinct as the people of God. That's all it takes. It's not a racial issue. It's a religious issue. The, 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 the reason is given explicitly there in Deuteronomy 7. So they don't turn your hearts away from God. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, did the stupidest thing in the world. He married 700 women. 700 women. In 1 Kings 11 says, by the end of his life, those wives, they turned him astray. They led him astray. They turned his heart away from God into the worship of the gods of their nations. And that's the wisest man who ever lived. There are exceptions. Ruth, but she converted. That line that you hear in every wedding, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. That's a statement of conversion. Ruth was a foreigner and it was fine for her to marry a Jew, an Israelite, because she converted. And she said, your God's going to be my God. That's what she says to her, to Naomi, her mother-in-law. The issue, again, it's not religious, although it's been misused that way. It's, or excuse me, it's not racial, it's religious. So for us, it's not white people can't marry black people, it's Christians. Don't marry a Hindu. Don't marry a Muslim. Don't marry a Buddhist. Don't marry someone who has a different opinion of Jesus than you do. If they don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, then you don't need to marry them. Ultimately, what that leads to, that opens the door for syncretism, the blending together of two different faiths. We'll talk next week about how to unravel ourselves from that. Last one, this is the hardest. So this whole idea of syncretism, you may say, I'm good, I'm single and I'm committed to marrying someone who loves Jesus or I'm married to someone who loves Jesus, so Ezra and I, check, let's move on. Nope. Where are we tempted to blend following Jesus with following another God? Where are we tempted to blend two different faiths? For most of you, I know, you don't, you're not Jesus and Buddha. You're not Jesus and Muhammad. You're not Jesus and Krishna. But living in Marietta in Cobb County, many of us try to do Jesus and money. That's the one for us. I'm making up a word, mammonism. The worship of mammon. You don't have a big dollar sign over an altar at your house that you kneel to when you walk by. You don't sing love songs to money. But when you think about worship in terms of who's forming my idea of the good life, when you think about worship in terms of allegiance or loyalty, when you think about worship in terms of um, expectations for success, either for yourself or the ones that you love, money, it, it's deep. It weaves its way in to our hearts. 
And the thing about money is it makes credible claims. If the claims weren't credible, we wouldn't be tempted. But they are. Money says, hey, if you get more of me, you can have more security. For some of you, money has nothing to do with acquisition, possessions. It's all about security. An uncertain world. And you want to know, if something happens, I'm going to be okay. I've got enough money if I lose my job. I've got enough money if there's a wreck. I've got enough money if somebody gets sick. And there's some prudence and wisdom there. You have to discern your own heart. Are you looking to money to provide security and protection? When Jesus is the one who says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Where are you looking? Are you blending together Jesus and money? Status. Money says, hey, you get more of me, you get more status. Clothes, cars, memberships, vacations, whatever it is that elevates us in the eyes of other people. Jesus takes the whole idea of status and turns it on its head. He says, the first will be last, the last will be first. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The greatest among you is the one who serves. He didn't, the whole idea of status in the kingdom is upside down. It's the foot washers. Money says, hey, you get more of me, you have, you have more opportunities. More things that you can do. Or how about this one? More things for your kids here in Cobb County. That's a huge one. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Quiet pasture, excuse me, green pastures, quiet waters, paths of righteousness. That's where I'm going to lead you. Those are your opportunities. Money says, hey, you get more of me and you have more comfort. And Jesus says, I'll send you the comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he'll live within you. Money says, more of me, more independence. You got more freedom. And Jesus says, no, you actually have to become like a child, which is completely dependent on me if you want to enter the kingdom of God. It's a, it's a different paradigm, to use a buzzword. It's a different set of values. It's a different perspective. And what we try to do is hold them together. Jesus says, don't store up treasures on, on earth. Store up treasures in heaven. Jesus says you can't serve God and money. And we say, we're going to give it a shot. Jesus says, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we don't even, we're like, what? Then we just decide that we're not rich. That's what we do. Jesus says your life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions. Paul says... Strong words. Read 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10 before you go to bed tonight. It's a hard passage. Those who want to be rich fall into trap and temptation, leading to, to behavior that's ruinous and destructive. Do we actually believe that? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so we just say, well, I don't, I don't love it. I just like it a lot. Hard. It's hard. You can order 80,000 different drinks at Starbucks. That's what they say. At Waffle House, you can order hash browns over 1.5 million ways. We love customization. It's where we live. This is exactly what I want. I was at Starbucks yesterday morning customizing something for someone in my house. 17 adjectives to order one drink in a... Land Rover Defender pulled up behind me. And I liked it a lot. 
And I was trying to think, how do I get one of those? Knowing what I was going to talk about today. (laughs) It's subtle. We want to pick and choose. I like this about Jesus. This, not so much. Not conscious. We just grab onto this. It's some kind of amalgamation of the American dream and suburbanism and it's that we just kind of push together. And it's very difficult to divorce ourselves from that. Here's a story you don't want to hear. John Wesley, you know who he is, founder of Methodism, one of the most influential Christian leaders of the last 500 years. And he was loaded. He was one of the richest men in England, made a ton of money selling his writings. When he was young, he got convicted. He was, he was making 30 pounds a year as a professor, which at the, I don't know what that translates to in today's dollars. I tried to figure it out. There's no good way of doing it. He, was, he lived during the 1700s. But for 30 pounds, a single guy could live comfortably. And he was. He was living comfortably. And a poor woman comes and knocks on his door one night, and she needs money for food and for heat. It's freezing. And he spent everything he had. And he's convicted, and he's thinking, God, what have I done? with what you've given me. So he makes a decision and he says, I'm going to set a standard of living and anything I make above that standard, I'm going to give. And so the first year, so he looks at his expenses and says, I need 28 pounds a year to live. So the first year he makes 30 pounds and he gives away two of them. The next year he makes 60 and he gives away 32 of them. And the next year he makes 90 and he gives away 62. And the next year he makes 120 and he gives away 92. He changes his standard of living as he gets older. He raises it to 30 pounds. And then one year he makes 1,400 pounds. And he gives away 1,370 of them. You don't want to know that story. And neither do I. (laughs) What do we do with that? What do we do? How do we begin? I don't have a good solution. At at 8 o'clock, I just told him to leave. I didn't have any good way of... I don't even know what I'm talking about in a sense. It's so big. And we can all think of, well, what about this? And what about this? And is this an accept? And we can go outside and we can look and we can see who's driving the nicest car and think, oh, okay. That's not, there's, that's not what we're doing. I think for me, the conviction point is, where am I putting my weight? On Jesus? Or do I have one foot on him and one foot on money? Who's determining for me what the good life is? What am I teaching my kids about what the good life is? Who's determining success? What value system am I subscribing to? Those are the questions. It makes, I told you the reason we were doing Ezra was because I feel like we live there. We live in this place where we're foreigners and exiles in a strange land and the kingdom is breaking in but has not fully taken hold and it won't until Jesus returns and we have to figure out what does it look like to live fully engaged in this world that God loves desperately without compromise without trying to blend together Following Jesus and following blank. And for many of us, it's money. I would encourage you. These are big things to begin to think through. To begin to pray through. 
on your own with your spouse if you're married? Have y'all ever even talked about, like, what's, what's the standard of living for us? For me, I get a little cost of living increase. I don't even ask or if I should give it away. I just take it. Never even crosses my mind to say, should I keep it or not? It's just automatic. I don't know where it is for you. Again, and ultimately for me, it's not about how much you keep or how much you give. That's between you and the Lord. And it's certainly not about how much you give here. You can give it somewhere else. I think for me, it's about hearts. And are we deeply rooted in Jesus? Do our roots go deep enough that we can stand firm until the end and be saved? Are we putting weight desolated and disappointed because it can't handle the weight of our life? Are we looking to something that doesn't have our best in mind to give direction and guidance and value to us? Bo's going to come back. When in doubt, just let the guy sing. This is what I want you to do. There's a basket under your chair. It has communion elements in it. Communion reminds us of the sufficiency of Jesus. He's all we need. And we know that, and it's easy in here to say, Jesus, you're all that I need. And it's hard when you're ordering a customized drink at Starbucks when a Land Rover Defender pulls up behind you to say, you're all I need. I don't need a nicer car. I don't need a $5 flat white, whatever, extra hot, no fat, whipped cream. I don't need that. It's fine that I can get it. I don't need it. It's super hard when you start thinking about it for your loved ones. What they need and what they don't need. And even that word need is so squishy. So we've got to hear the Lord. But in order to hear him, the first thing we've got to do is ask the question. So if you're willing to, this morning I would just say, ask the question, Holy Spirit, would you search me and know me? This can blow up your house, and so you've got to be locked in with your spouse. Some of you, honestly, right now your relationship is not in a spot where you can even begin to have these conversations. So just push pause. God, would you begin to speak to us if you're married? If you're single, God, would you speak to me? What are you calling us to? John Wesley's not Jesus. That's not the goal. It's an example, though, of somebody who said, I'm not going to let money worm its way into my heart. If you need gluten-free bread, you can raise your hand. Kim will bring you some. For the rest of us, as Bo sings, I want you to break off a piece of bread and eat it and recognize this is the body of Christ that was broken for you. It was broken so that we'd be made whole and his body that represents for us, again, his sufficiency. He's everything that we need. He gives us everything that we need. Peel off that foil and drink the juice representing his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That signifies to us relationship restored. You can be adopted into the family of God. You're his son or his daughter. Your dad is the king. And he's really rich. And he said, everything I've got is yours. You've got access to all of this. 
God, would you speak to us? I don't want anybody leave, leaving feeling condemned or guilty. I want all of us, though, to really think and wrestle and those online to do the same. What are you saying to us? What are you saying to us about the subtlety and the power of money in our own hearts and in this community in which we live? And what does it look like for us to be wholly set apart from that? I don't believe you're calling any of us to go move into the woods and live off the grid. You've called us, like we heard last week, to be salted lights. That means we got to be here. So speak. And again, I do pray for those who are prone to guilt. Protect them. Keep sound mind. As we work through what this looks like with our good, good Father. Amen. So Bo's going to sing. You just let him sing over you. Spend some time with the Lord, and then he'll dismiss us. Hey, guys. So glad you're able to join us today for worship. Um, and and I'm, I hope you were able to see the, the worship. I'm sorry, the baptism videos. Those are really special for us to share with you guys this morning. I got Cole Hansen with me. Cole is one of our new interns um, and asked him to just to come. And we, we've both just been asking God uh Speak to us and show us what you would like us to be able to share, to be able to encourage you guys uh, after the service. Um, and, and, and so really, um, the biggest point that I really wanted to be able to examine in my own heart and encourage you guys just to be able to spend a little bit of time this week is around the role of money. Um, Cole and I were just talking just how easily it is. It, it, it does, it seeps in, it takes over um, parts of our heart and it gives us false sense of security, of comfort, of hope, all these areas that God desperately wants to be the one to be our provider of our hope, our security. Um, and so it's tricky. And it does take us to really be able to pause and to say, what role does money play in my own heart? And so I would encourage you um, to honestly be able to spend a little bit of time examining your heart, ask God to show you um, what role money has been playing in your heart. Do you place your hope in it? Is it your source of comfort? Is it um, the thing that, that ultimately decides are you moving towards best financial decisions or towards where the Lord is leading you? And sometimes, absolutely, those do overlap. Um, but sometimes the power of money can lead us uh, away from where the Lord is, is leading us. And um, it's completely different for all of us. And so I just encourage you, spend some time, ask God to show you what role money has in your heart. Cole, do you have something you want to share with us from the service as well? Yes, yes. Um, listening to David, the one piece that really stuck out to me was the identification and the repentance piece that, um, as we read Ezra 9, um, just seeing Ezra model uh, so well um, that while God's people were living in sin and he wasn't living in sin, that he took that burden upon himself and he approached God and uh, identified himself with them and then ask for repentance. Um, and then David saying the piece about fairness not being a kingdom value, I think that's really easy for us as uh, believers to just be consumed and worried about our own lives 
and uh, whether we're sinning, whether we're doing the right things, uh, but realizing that there's a bigger picture, that there's a global body. Um, and uh, even, even here, just at Stonebridge, that this is a bigger body that we're a part of. And when one part of the body is affected, uh, the whole body should know about it. The whole body should be aware of it. And uh, our approach, our first step should be in prayer. And uh, I was kind of, uh, as I was praying about that, I was kind of guided to Matthew 5, 3 through 10, the Beatitudes. Um, and I really felt like, you know, since fairness isn't a kingdom value, what is kingdom values? And I feel like this uh, scripture lays it out really well, being meek, righteous, merciful, pure in heart, and being a peacemaker. Those things, um, as followers of Christ, we should be embodied uh, and be acting out, and that should be our priority. That should be the outflow of our lives, and when that's not adding up, that we step in and be people of intercession and be praying for the body. That's so good. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for sharing. Um, glad you guys could join us. It's given me a lot to think about. I encourage you guys to be able to think about some of these things, spend some time with the Lord this week. Hope you guys have a great day, and we'll see you next Sunday.